man, filled with adoration and worship. And I'm going to be honest with you, we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew 19. I don't know if you've been reading ahead. I don't know if that's your, your custom to kind of look up and see what's coming our way. But um, it's, it's a tough section of Bible, okay? Here's what goes on. You look at Matthew 19 and, and the opening line, it, it might seem kind of just a throwaway little line. It's not. It's actually really purposeful. Matthew says in, in 19.1, he says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. So he's not just giving us a geographic little signpost. He's not just giving us a, a chronology of things. He's tipping his hand to the reader. He's been carefully watching this narrative to let, it, let all of us know Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. From this point on in the narrative, Jesus is like setting his focus on getting to Jerusalem and nothing is going to dissuade him. Nothing is going to hold him back. And if you just flip back like a page, you'll see in chapter 16, verse 21, that he's been preempting this with his followers, letting them know this day is coming. In 1621, he said, it says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and then be raised the third day. So he has been, what he says there, in an ongoing way, letting them know, like, I don't know if it was daily, but, but saying, hey guys, at some point, we're, we're going to take a right, <laughs> we're going we're to start heading to Jerusalem, and I just, I need you to know, because I know what's awaiting me there. It's a very dark, like, if, if the Bible could do this, okay, if the Bible could do this, when you turn to Matthew 19, all of a sudden, like, a shadow would kind of fall over Matthew 19, and ominous music would start playing, and you'd be like, what is going, you know, like, there'd be kind of a chill if the Bible could create goosebumps on your skin. You'd be like, what is going on? Like, that opening line is not just a geographic thing. It's a big pointer to say, hey, reader, it's time. It's time. Jesus has been doing incredible things, traveling all over the region, sometimes even leaving the region, doing awesome things. It's time to go to Jerusalem. It's a threatening place because when he gets there, he's going to start confronting again the religious leaders, but not just the religious leaders kind of in general. He's going to be confronting their religious hypocrisy, the religious hierarchy, the, the, the heavy, burdensome power that they are just using to oppress God's people, and it will get him killed. Now, that's all also in Jesus' mind because what they're trying to do in snuffing him out is going to bring us salvation and a resurrection. We're, we're all grateful for the cross, but just, just know from the human perspective, right, he knows what he's about to enter into in this very dark time. But here's what's beautiful. Look at verse 2. Along the way, knowing, so think about that. What would be going on in your mind if you knew, hey, on my, I'm on my way to Tiffin now because when I get to Tiffin, I'm going to have to confront some people and they're going to kill me, okay? What would be going on in your mind? Well, look what's going on with Jesus. In 19.2, large crowds followed him and so he decided just to ignore them because he was kind of preoccupied and he was in his own head and he couldn't, didn't have time to, no. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. I just love this about Jesus. Like the generosity just keeps going, right? He knows what's going on, the dark shadow, the ominous music is all around him. He gets it. 
but he is on his way. There are people that need him that don't know that bigger story. And so he just compassionately meets their needs, heals them. Just the generous grace. It's like the cup of God's kindness is overflowing. The bounty on the table of God is just falling off. He is just richly taking care of the people, having compassion. It's beautiful. But that all gets interrupted. Those are just the first two verses. And then verse three. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? All right, big question, right? That's what I'm saying. We're, we're going hit, to hit a tough chunk of Bible here. Big question. But understand and remember, it's not a sincere question. Matthew's told us. The question is not being asked sincerely because they're like, you know, I've really been wondering, can you help me? I really want to, no, 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 it's not that. These guys are trying to trap him. They're testing him. Why? Because in the context back in their day, there were people that had very uh, decided opinions about divorce. And there were big camps of people that thought one way and others that thought another way. And basically they're testing him, trapping him because there's, there's really no win to this. He's going to offend, depending on, in their minds, depending on how he answers, depending on kind of which group he lands in, he's going to offend the other group. And so they're, they're testing him. They don't want to know. They're not sitting there ready to take notes so they can learn from Jesus. They're wanting to bait him into a no-win situation. Um, I, I want to hit pause and say, guys, it's actually not that different than our day today. And here's what I mean. Um, here we are, removed by about 2,000 years. We're removed by over 6,000 miles of geography and culture, and yet there is so much transference in how people might approach a chapter like this. Here's what I mean. There might be some that come to a church, maybe even Veritas Church, maybe even here this morning, and they'll be like, hey, Veritas, what's your stand on divorce? I, I, I want to know what your stand on divorce is. Not because they want to have a teachable moment, but because they've had a very decided position that they've wrapped their soul around, and they're ready to kind of put a line in the sand and say, what, what do you think about divorce? Because I'll tell you what, um, I'm a no-divorce guy. I'm a no-divorce, nobody, no-time-for-any-reason kind of guy, and I want to know, are you one of those churches that just compromises the Word of God, just throws it out every time it gets challenged. Are you one of those liberal, compromising kind of churches? Because if that's the kind of church you are, I'm out of here, right? And then you've got the other group that might come with that same question. Hey, Veritas, what's your stand on divorce? Because I'm an actual one of those don't you judge me kind of people. And you start throwing down, well, you know what? How can you tell me that? You don't know where I've been, and you don't know what I've been through. And you know what? If this is one of those judgmental, legalistic churches full of religious bigots, I'm out of here, right? So that's where Jesus is at. Jesus is facing these like, oh, somebody's going to get ticked off right now, right? So I guess what I'm saying is if, if I get done here and everybody's offended, I might, have done, <laughs> I might have done the best job I could. I don't know. I'm not going to go for that, but I'm just saying it's a distinct possibility. No, here's what's going on. Jesus is actually going to disappoint every camp. As is his custom, he's going to kind of speak right over their testing question. 
And honestly, I want you to think about this. If you guys represent the crowds that have been following him and receiving mercy and compassion, and all of a sudden, some of the religious leaders kind of got in the way and posed this question, it's almost like Jesus, here's their question, but is going to talk right over them to talk to the people that he actually loves and is having compassion on. It's going to kind of just, yeah, actually, I don't want to answer that question. I want to talk to you guys. And that's what I think that he does here. So he starts by saying, well, haven't you read? <laughs> I always love that kind of patronizing question. I don't think he does it as snotty as I would do it, but, <laughs> but I love the fact that in verse four, he starts, well, haven't you read? I mean, these guys know their Bibles backward and forward, right? But the problem is they use the Bible like a club. They use the Bible like a sort. It's their authority actually over the Bible, and they're just kind of using the Bible at will. By that question, he's actually not being snotty. He's trying to say, have you ever read like with a view to listen? Ha have you been reading your Bible with a view to be under its authority? Have you read your Bible enough to actually be taught? Because here's what he says. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay. He actually kind of pulls a full stop there. That's actually his answer. And it doesn't actually answer their question at all. But here's what he does. He takes us back to Genesis. So if you've got a Bible, I want us to go back to Genesis and see what he's referring to here. This is foundational. This is the stuff you can't miss. This is what Jesus wants to teach us. Okay. Skip the question for now, because he really wants to teach us something way more foundational. You go back to Genesis chapter 1. You don't get more foundational than going back to Genesis 1. The very first verse, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, very first line of the Bible is making a proposition. Life is not an accident. We are here because of the act of a creator. He's created all things, and, and so we, we should perk up and pay attention to what he's about to tell us because he made us, right? We're his. So you get down into chapter one, he's been creating all things beautifully, gloriously. You get down to chapter one, verse 26, and he talks very specifically about creating mankind. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man or mankind in our image, according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. This idea that, that God created mankind in his image. He, he repeats it three times so that we wouldn't miss that part of the very important narrative. God created image bearers. He's not said that about the stars. He's not said that about the cattle. God's people, we are image bearers three times. And part of bearing his image is actually maleness and femaleness. The, the complete picture of image bearing is not going to be found in anyone. It's going to be found in maleness and femaleness. Together, 
they show something beautiful about the image of God. In fact, go to chapter 5 real quick because over in chapter 5, so you get past chapter 3, the, the fall of mankind's sin entering in. Chapter 4 is horrible, chaotic. It doesn't take long for sin to reign. And so we're going to have a little bit of a restart in chapter 5. And look at how he starts the, the restart of the narrative. Chapter 5, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, so that we don't forget, just in case we get lost in all the muck of chapters 3 and 4, on the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That hasn't changed. He created them male and female. And when they were created, he blessed them and he called them mankind. So, why does Jesus start with that in answer to this question of divorce? Like, that seems like an odd place to go when the question is clearly, can we just get a divorce for any reason? The first thing that Jesus wants us to know when he talks about marriage, God created mankind as image bearers. That's what he wants us to know. Foundational to an understanding of marriage is this idea of us being image bearers. So as image bearers, we are like the crescendo of God's creation. Because of the way that it's written, because of the way we are created, we have honor. We have a high place in all of creation. In fact, everything is going to be put under our feet. We are at the top of the food chain, so to speak. We are, we've just been given so much dignity and value and unconditional love by our Creator. And part of that loving, intentional creation of us is maleness and femaleness. Very intentional. There's to be um, an ability to, to distinguish between male and female. We're, we're to be complementary. We're to be mutually dependent on one another. Together, in fact, maleness and femaleness together is how the earth will get populated. Without maleness and femaleness, no filling the earth is going to happen. And so he's going to cause us to have to need each other in mutual dependence so that we can truly bear his image. So, guys, this is really important, and then we're going to get back to Jesus' argument. This binary kind of aspect of the, of the image bearers, this two kind of coming together to form one-ness, <laughs> one whole composed of two-ness thing um, is vital to marriage. Gender and marriage, you guys, this is, this is really important. Gender and marriage are not just kind of a, a social construct, okay? We didn't make this stuff up. It's intentional. What's a social construct? A social construct is when humans get together and they decide, you know, we're going to just order ourselves in a certain way because if we all order ourselves in a certain way, life will just be easier. For instance, we're going to decide together that when we want to drive from one point to another, we're all going to decide to use roads, okay? And we're going to decide to put some numbers on those roads so that there's generally a way that we keep under that, that number there. Because if we all abide by that, it's, it's going to be better for all of us. So when you came to Veritas this morning, you didn't just, as the crow flies, just start driving across your neighbor's lawns and, you know, just, you know, tearing down fences. And, no, you said, there's just an understanding we're all going to have. We're going to go together and build roads and obey some rules, and it's going to go better for all of us. That's a social concert. We decide, you know, money, different things. Sometimes we want to believe that things like marriage or even gender are social constructs. People just decided one day, let's just decide to make this thing called marriage. Maybe it'll go easier. 
And then later we can decide not to, right? In other words, later on, what if we all have hovercraft and we decide to not use our highways anymore? We could do that, right? Because that'd just make life easier. No, back when we had four wheels in a vehicle, we had to use those, but no more. In the same way, well, we don't need marriage anymore. Actually, we don't even need gender anymore because we've just constructed those things of our own. Here's what I'm saying. Gender and marriage are not social constructs. They are given to us by our God. God created with great intentionality, great design, in fact, with great beauty and harmony such that when we do it His way, we actually make a glorious God look even more glorious because we're image-bearing at that point, right? Let's do this. Let's go back to Matthew 19. He starts with this idea. He created them male and female. Well, that's an interesting way to start this argument. And then he said, and then he also says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two. They're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, here's what we're going to do, guys. We're going to go back to Genesis again, because now he's going into chapter two. So let's look at Genesis chapter two. So Genesis one is all basically an overview of God creating all things. Genesis two pulls over and parks very specifically to look at the creation of mankind. So he introduced the creation of mankind in chapter one. Chapter two in Genesis is, let me tell you more about how I did that. So I'm gonna drop us all the way down to verse 18. Chapter two, verse 18. It says, then the Lord said, it's just not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal, every bird of the sky, brought each of them to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, to every animal, right? So he's parading all the animals in front of Adam. Hey, what do you want to call it? I call that one lion. I call that one hippo, you know, whatever. Uh, so the man gave names to all the livestock, birds of the sky, to every wild animal. But for man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Like, wow, I see a, a boy and a girl croc. That's probably bad because I have no idea how you'd tell the difference between a male and female croc. But I mean, just uh, whatever, male and female, all spiders, whatever. I'm picking animals. I have no idea how to tell the gender. <laughs> Let's just assume for the sake of argument that they're able to tell gender. So he's bringing them all by. And they're in twos, right? And he's going, well, that's, that's funny, God, because it seems like everything else has this kind of binary component to it. There's like a, a couple of them. And man, I don't. Is there one of those for me, right? So he's creating this kind of vacuum uh, in Adam's soul. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place and the Lord God made the rib that he had taken from man into a woman, taken from the, into a woman and brought her to the man and the man said, this, this one, I love it, this one, not all those others, get out of here, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why, verse 24, a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Males and females now, this is what Jesus is drawing out in Matthew 19 are to bond together in marriage, okay? They are to leave all others. In fact, even leaving parents, like that is the most crucial 
social construct, the social fiber that they have is, is family. And he's saying, even mother and father, you're, this is how important this new marriage is going to be. You're going to even leave socially the people closest to you in order to form a whole new kind of union, husband and wife. There's supposed to be an inseparable new oneness. That's supposed to be expressed socially, and it's supposed to be expressed sexually. They come together. They, they, they are formed together, and they bond together even sexually, socially and sexually, never to be parted. Okay, Matthew 19. Those are the texts that he's just referred to, right? He says, have you never read way back the opening chapters? You get to Matthew 19, and he's saying, therefore... What God has joined together, let no one separate. Full stop. Guys, what he's trying to say is that divorce tears into, just rips into God's primary display of image bearing. It's going to go way beyond, can I do this? Can I do that? No, hold on. He, he says, let, let's go back to the beginning. One of the most primary foundational ways for image bearing to come onto this planet is through marriage and divorce just tears. It's why it's so destructive, guys. That's why divorce is so destructive. It's tearing at something that's at its fiber, at its core, at its essence, is to do something beautiful in displaying the image of God. Even the Hebrew word that is used for bonding together, husband and wife, it's this interesting word that has to do with like, think of like wood glue. So if you have ever um, broken a piece of wood and then glued it back together, okay? So when I was a kid, um, we were really into for a while kung fu. And I'm not talking about kung fu panda, that's cool too. I'm talking about kung fu like David Carradine, too old, doesn't matter, he's dead, but... uh, this, like, and here's what we do sometimes. We, we'd want to like, wah, you know, do this stuff. So if you broke a big stick somehow, like with a lot of effort, and then, and then you kind of pushed it back together, you know, like this, and, and your friends couldn't even tell that it was broken, right? Because it was so complimentary, all the sides. And then you watch this, wah, like, and it break, oh, wow, so strong, like kung fu, right? David Carradine. Anyway, if you ever did that, okay, so you've got a stick, just work with me. You've got a stick, and and it corresponds perfectly. So if you added wood glue in that joint and then put it back together, the next time that you went to break that stick apart, what would happen? Would you end up with those two perfect holes the way that they were before you wood glued them back together? No, it would break somewhere else. The bond of glue that holds those together is actually stronger at that point than the rest of the thing. And so there's always destruction. There's always something that's going to get broke. One of them's going to get shorted. Everything's going to be destroyed, right? You can't undo it. Guys, divorce breaks something. It tears into something that God has brought together. And nobody knows this more than those who have been through divorce. Nobody would make this point more than those who have been either themselves divorced or have been in close orbit around divorce. Um, So just so you guys know, uh, we've experienced this in my own family. And I was telling the elders earlier this week that 
I'm approaching this text with a whole nother perspective. Not wanting to enter into Matthew 19 to parse this and see exactly what's the rule. What's the rule when we get done? Let's, guys, I found myself crying over this, weeping over this. No, nobody has to convince. The, the, the people that have been nearest to divorce are the ones that want to make this point the loudest. Um, so I'm not preaching from some ivory tower. I am actually preaching with tears um, because all of us live after Genesis 1 and 2 when all the destruction of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 comes in and everything seems to be breaking apart. It's not just marriages, right? We're busting up God's image in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of ways. We live in a land and among a people who are vandalized by sin and now we're trying to put the pieces back together. We live a long way from Eden, okay? We live a long way from Eden. So here's what happens. That's why in, back in Matthew 19, verse 7, Jesus has said, that's my answer. Actually, we should get back to the beginning. We should get back to the foundation. We, we should just see what God clearly wanted why then in verse 7, they keep, why then they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? If that's God's idea. Well, number one, guys, do you think Moses really commanded divorce? No, once again, they're kind of baiting him. No, Moses didn't command, everybody, go get a divorce. That's not what happened, okay? He's referring to Deuteronomy 24, and here's what was going on in Deuteronomy 24. People were just getting divorced for almost any reason, so there was just... Terrible things going on, especially for women, because women at that point were so dependent on men culturally that they were really the ones that were suffering. And so he's trying to just mitigate that in, in, Matthew 20, or in uh, Deuteronomy 24. In fact, it's in Deuteronomy 24, in fact, that he says this. After talking about how to keep from this being oppressive and destructive for women, he actually throws this verse in. Maybe you've heard this one. Hey, once you get married... Don't, don't have the guy go serve in the military. In fact, don't have him take any like heavy, intense labor for that first year. Have him learn how to bring joy to his wife in that whole first year of marriage. Moses is not commanding divorce. Moses is trying to help God's people sustain healthy marriage. That's what he's trying to do, right? So Jesus doesn't fall, for, doesn't take the bait, right? He says back in verse 8, no, he told them, Moses permitted you to divorce, then command people to divorce. He permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. That's not the way it was. Out. Moses had to do, you know, kind of pick up work after Genesis 3. But he, it's not the way it was from the beginning. I tell you then, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. What he's pointing at now are, what we have are these two clear uh, times that the Bible permits divorce. Here what we've got is for sexual sin. The word here for, for sexual immorality is this general word, pornea. Uh, it just means sexual sin of all kinds. Just adultery. Like, so if there's a, a sexual aberration, um, then 
divorce is permitted. And the other one we find when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, and that's abandonment. When there's abandonment issues, God gives permission, doesn't command, gives permission for a divorce. Why? Now, think, I want you to think this through with me. Why would sexual sin and abandonment be the permissions that God would give for divorce? Because, guys, we went back to the beginning. We let Jesus take us back to the beginning. And those two things destroy the foundational components of marriage to leave all and bond together. So you've got the social oneness, leaving all and bonding man to wife. And those also destroy the foundational component of one fleshness, sexual oneness. So social oneness, sexual oneness. If you violate that, if, if you vandalize that, there is permission, not command. In fact, don't go there. Go back to God's original, but there's permission at least for divorce. Now, let's take a deep breath and say, wow, these are, whew, these are heavy words from Jesus. So we're part of the crowd. We're actually not those religious leaders trying to trap him. We're actually leaning in. Jesus, what does this mean for me, right? And so I just want to have us think this through. If you're single today, and I would say you've got many, many single adults, not just collegiates, but career people and older single people. Here's what I want to say, first of all. We should read this if you're single and grow in awe of all that God put into this marriage thing and not just leap into a relationship, leap into a marriage because you, you think that somehow you'll just, you're missing something and you'll be fulfilled just if I could just have a relationship, just have a marriage, just have, you realize, right, how huge the stakes are in this thing called marriage. If we're really to be image bearers, if this is really the kind of thing that in coming together we would display something beautiful about God, then take very seriously who that is that you would fuse your life with, right? And so if you're single, don't leap into a relationship. Don't, don't seek too quickly to be into marriage because the, the stakes are so high. Follow the Creator. It, it might be that He would have you to be single rather than find destruction in marriage in singleness, that's actually what he goes, kind of an enigmatic little passage he goes into, and he goes into that again in 1 Corinthians. But, but for today, just know that singleness is actually, to the glory of God, a beautiful way to express your oneness with God. If God should bring you to a point of marriage, wait, 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 wait to find the kind of marriage that would actually really honor him. If you're married, okay, if you're married here today, and I think all of us need to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and say all over again, God, how can I recommit myself to this social bond? Have I allowed other people to enter in that are actually nearer to me socially than my husband, my wife? Are there, are there, is there interference being going on because we're to have a oneness? I'm to even leave parents. If if parents, certainly anybody else, in order to have, is there anything social, is there a social component? Have you, are you just not one with her or him? And sexually, men and women, don't defraud your marriage. Let, the book of Hebrews says, let the marriage bed be undefiled, unpolluted. 
Maintain the purity of your marriage socially and sexually. Maintain it. God, this is not just about this marriage. This is about bearing your image. It's about saying something beautiful about you. So I'm going to do this, yes, for the sake of my spouse, but also for you. Reclaim these, these foundational truths. And then lastly, there are people in here, absolutely, who are divorced, are in the middle of divorce, so where is Jesus in this? How, how's he going to speak to you? Well, sometimes if it's on us and we're just doing wrong, it's our time then to repent and stop and change and say, oh, God, give me grace to, to stop this freight train that I have started. Other times we're the victims of it and we're just staying there watching it all happen. I can't answer all the myriad intricacies of what's going on. But I just want us to go back to something. Remember when I said that that very first verse of Matthew 19 is really important? Where is Jesus on his way to when he does this teaching? He's on his way to the cross, right? And the grace that's going to be available to us because of the cross is greater than any sin that goes on in this world, any destruction that happens. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So I'm not getting distracted and just starting to read my phone because I'm distracted, you know, bored with me. Uh, there's actually a text on here that I want to read to you. So a good friend of mine is in the midst of divorce. Um, and so I was texting different ones, either have been divorced, my own son, uh, and, and other friends, this particular friend's just in the midst of it. So the other night, I'm texting back and forth with him. And here's what he said. He said, Jeff, one November morning in 2017, God spoke to me and he said, it's going to be just me and you for a while. This has been a season of stripping me of all pretense, false gods, and removal of every idol, at least all the ones I've identified. Still have blinders sometimes. But he says, it could have very easily gone in a different direction, a destructive direction for me, especially if I let myself sit in the betrayal. But I decided to run to God and to run to the church, trusting that God was good and that the church, despite its brokenness, was his answer. That was the best decision ever. I called with my whole heart and he answered and he came to my rescue. I like that you're going to approach this topic at Veritas with tenderness because it stinks. He used a different word. Stinks when you live it. I'm going to pray for you and your Jesus talk on the topic. And then he started sending me worship songs that he uses to bring him back to you. In fact, this morning, uh, he's actually leading worship in the church that he goes to as I'm teaching the word because God's drawn his heart to Jesus even in the midst of destruction which is why I'm glad after a hard word from Jesus that we're going to celebrate communion this morning because it's when we get to communion that we're able to say, Jesus, what a mess. What a mess in my life. What a mess in the lives around me. Thank you, Jesus, that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And maybe it is that God is going to use his powerful word in crazy ways in your life today to just bring you back 
to Jesus. Jesus, I'm glad that you taught me these hard things on your way to a cross where you'd throw down your life for me. I can follow that kind of, I can listen, I can hear that kind of teaching, Jesus, because of the kind of love that you bring with it.